Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. One of the most important skills a person can develop is learning how to learn. Learning how to update old beliefs about ourselves that we're still hanging on to, take in new information, and build psychological resources like courage, gratitude, and confidence. We have experiences from which we could potentially learn all the time. But how often are we actually changed by them for the better? Rather than having our positive experiences pass through us like water through a sieve, we can learn how to make them stick. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and my dad. And I'm very happy to let you know that he's also the first author of a recent study which was published in the Journal of Positive Psychology, titled Learning to Learn from Positive Experiences. And what they learned from that study is going to be the basis of our conversation today. So, Dad, how are you doing? I'm really good. And frankly, I'm thrilled that we are going to talk about this little baby. Yeah, I mean, for sure. It was a real you're process. You're my baby. You're my baby and, <laughs> and your sister. But I got to tell you, this one is sort of like your third another child. Baby. Yeah, it's, like yeah. A, it's just my stepchild. <laughs> yeah, totally. So before we get into it, I want to give people a couple of quick reminders. First, please remember to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps us out. And then second, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of a few dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll receive bonuses like deep dives into the research behind each episode, transcripts, and ad-free versions of everything that we create. So I'd love to start with just a bit of background on what the heck everybody did here. What were you focusing on in the study? Well, we focused on something that seems really obvious, actually, and yet, like many things that seem initially obvious, had had no research to speak of on it. <laughs> you know, and so, for example, people like uh, Bob Evans that we've had on the podcast, mm -hmm. Professor Robert Evans, was the first who did major work on gratitude. Oh. Kristen Neff, doing the early research on self-compassion. These are really important things that no one had ever studied before. So what interested me is to work backwards from the challenges that we all face in life. The best way to cope with and succeed in dealing with challenges is to draw on various inner strengths, like some that you've named already, courage, self-confidence, compassion, emotional know-how, you know, knowing how to get stuff done, knowing how to manage your own thoughts and feelings, and so forth. All right, sounds good. Thank you, Captain Obvious. But here's the not-so-obvious <laughs> question. How can we deliberately grow the key mm, inner mm -hmm. strengths that will make an important difference to us in our families, in our works, in healing our past pain, and working with other people in mm -hmm. making a better world? How can we grow the strengths inside? There's been very, very little research on that. The research that has existed has tended to focus on external factors, like the settings, mm -hmm. the environments, what people do, or very global attitudes or points of view, like having a growth mindset or being open to your own experience. All that's really good. And yet, actually, what makes the most difference is where, in effect, the neurological rubber meets the road in how we directly engage our experiences of whatever we're trying to grow. If you're mm -hmm. trying to grow happiness or patience or self-worth, that starts by experiencing it. But then as you 
have that particular experience, it can either just wash through your mind like water through your sieve, or you can use the methods that we studied in the study to deliberately and directly increase positive neuroplasticity while you're having that experience so it lodges inside you and then you are growing that inner strength every day. And you can take the results with you wherever you go. Something that's implicit in what you're saying here that's actually really essential is the idea that these resources can be acquired at all. That you can become more fill-in-the-blank, courageous, confident, calm, mindful. Skillful. Skillful over time. And for a long time in the psychological literature, it was actually thought that people's character was pretty set, certainly by the time that they were 18, 20 years old. And it turns out that the more research that has been done on this, the more conclusively it's been found that, no, people change over time and they can absolutely develop these different psychological resources or internal strengths, call them what you will. And some of them are absolutely probably innate or at least influenced by nature-based factors. But most of them are actually acquired over time. And so To my understanding, what you are really focusing on here is how we can supercharge the acquisition of those various psychological resources by what we're actually actively doing inside of the brain. Is that more or less accurate? Oh, it's a fantastic summary, Forrest. Great. And as you probably know, because we've had people on the podcast talking about this, on average, that's a key disclaimer. Sure. Yeah, Roughly, I know where you're going here. Yeah, two-thirds of the variation in who people become over adulthood is not heritable. In other words, what's left, that two-thirds on average that's left, has to do with the influence of all kinds of other things, such as environmental factors and a lot what we do inside our own minds. So mm-hmm. On the one hand, there are societal policy implications for this. If roughly two-thirds of who we're becoming is up for grabs, that's a strong argument that for supporting positive developments in society that are supportive of people and facilitate the most optimal forms of human growth and flourishing. Second, to really zero in on self-reliance, really. How can we grow? Strengths inside, or to use a kind of metaphor, because I spend a lot of time in the wilderness, how do you get more of the good stuff inside your backpack, Mm -hmm. right? The stuff we need in the long road of life. If I may also add, there's this proverb that a friend shared with me that has stuck in my mind for a long time. Proverb Mm -hmm. is, bad farmers grow weeds, good farmers grow crops, great farmers grow soil. Mm -hmm. And in effect, with this study focused on as the first and exploratory study of its kind was how can people be good farmers and even great farmers in terms of growing specific strengths inside and over time, in effect, probably changing their brain so that it becomes increasingly fertile ground for the good that we'd like to grow inside ourselves. So to understand this material a little bit better, it's probably useful to have a general idea of how learning works in the brain, because we're really talking about learning how to learn here, particularly the forms of social and emotional learning that we're really focusing mm-hmm. on. So would you mind giving a pretty quick a pretty quick survey of that? Because that's a big Well, topic. I'm really happy about this one, because I can give a quick answer to this one. Great. Awesome. So working backwards, and it's helpful as, as we listen to this material to bring it down to kind of earth. In other words, huh, what would be good 
if it were happening more inside you, if it were mm. more of mm -hmm. a trait, let's say. And one of the traits that I'm working on is to just become less bothered by stuff. I still see it, I still deal with it, but to be just at peace about it or equanimous about it, to have some sense of emotional balance about it. So I'm, I'm working on that, including a certain subtle impatience because I can be kind of quick and I want to get stuff done and I can get a little intense about it maybe. You might have noticed that growing up. <laughs> Even though I've gotten nothing better <laughs> as an old guy. Yeah, I mean, you, you, I've always, you know, to use the language of the Enneagram, Dad. I've always thought you had a little wing and eight. We've we've gone back and forth about that over time, but that's uh, been that's been my thought. And so, yeah, yeah you, you've got a little bit of that instinct in you. Yeah, a little. Uh. So okay, so yeah, I want to grow. So I want to grow more, like say, patience sure. or spaciousness or. A more, I don't know, lighthearted, carefree, if you will, about certain goals or the trains running on time or the dishes yeah, being yeah. put away in the right place. Okay. So I'm working on that. Other people might be working on other things, including healing old past wounds that made you feel inadequate or th that have made you doubt yourself so that you end up playing small. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we start with whatever we want to grow. Yeah. Now the simple part how do you grow it? How do you grow that good crop inside your brain? Two steps. Number one, almost always, you must have an experience of it. You must have an experience of, let's say, patience or equanimity or a carefree attitude. You must have an experience of maybe an idea about how to work with a more multicultural team at work, say. You start with the experience. Learning is conscious. There's a little bit of unconscious learning, but it's not very significant. We start with experiences. And then, critically important, we must help that experience change the brain. No brain change, no learning. Period. End of story. Kind of, to use the metaphor, you can cast your seeds upon the soil, but if they don't sink in, no good crops will grow. You have to move from states to traits for any kind of lasting learning. And then the positive traits, the inner strengths, the positive traits you develop inside yourself increasingly foster beneficial, useful, wholesome states of mind, experiences, in other words, which then you are able to reinforce to strengthen that trait over time. So it's a mm -hmm. two-step mm -hmm. process that can create a wonderful positive cycle. Bad news, due to the negativity bias, Negative learning is turbocharged in the brain. Negative states quickly become negative traits. While, meanwhile, unfortunately, most mm, positive mm -hmm. states for most people are momentarily pleasant, but they have no enduring value. That is very humbling to face, especially if you're in the growth business, like therapists, coaches, mindfulness teachers. It's humbling to face the fact that for most people, most of the useful beneficial experiences of inner strengths that they're having are wasted on their brain because mm -hmm. people are not engaging them directly to maximize neuroplastic change. So the language that's often used to describe those two stages is activation and installation. That's my language. Yeah, okay, great. Because I'm a kind of geeky guy. So if yeah, we've now yeah. moved from agriculture to computer programming, <laughs> activation, installation. I'm good with that, though. Yeah. So these two phases, activation and installation. In activation, we have some kind of an experience. And then in installation, that experience is encoded in some kind of lasting way into the brain. You need to have an experience of doing it the right way, whatever that is for you, right? Being confident, being calm, 
being centered, having a kind of workplace interaction like the one you were describing earlier, Dad, where you're interacting with people in a new and different way for you and then learning from that, updating your priors, to use a, a phrase from Bayesian analysis if you're into that. And that's more or less how these things actually change in a meaningful way in the brain. And then we can do what you were referring to, Dad, which is that deliberate act of trying to emphasize it in a variety of different ways so it really sticks with us. Because there's a big problem that underlies this whole territory, and it's the one that you said at the end there, which is that incidental learning is actually pretty limited. Because if you think about it, most people are having plenty of good experiences on a daily basis. If you ask people to report their experiences, and a lot of studies have done this, when people go back and have to deliberately report it, they generally report mostly neutral to positive experiences. So... If that's the case, why aren't we all just psychological superstars walking around the world with a ton of all of these inner resources just easily accessible inside of ourselves? And there are a lot of reasons for this, one of which is that the world can be a really challenging place and we have negative experiences too. And another one is that this deliberate process that you're talking about is not really used very actively by people most of the time. And we need to be very deliberate about it if we're actually going to create reliable change. What a great summary. Something that has really struck me again and again is there I am having a really good conversation with your mom and I realize, oh, okay, next time I need to do something better. <laughs> you know, I don't say this or do say that or yeah, yeah. approach the situation or wait longer before giving unwanted advice. There's some opportunity there for a takeaway. But the next day I do exactly the same thing as before. Mm -hmm. No learning. It didn't sink in. Or... People are having many episodes a day where they're actually accomplishing little things. And yet at the end of the day, they don't feel successful. Mm -hmm. Or people are having many experiences physically of their heart rate slowing and they're relaxing as they exhale biologically. You can't help it. It's natural that it happens. And yet there's no development of trait relaxation over time. Mm -hmm. Those moments of relaxation, those states did not sink in. Or people are having many episodes in which others are friendly, inclusive, supportive, appreciative, warm, and still deep down inside, they feel lonely and uncared for. So right there, it did not sink in. It's mm -hmm. really quite poignant. Another thing as a detail in research, let's say you do a well-controlled study on psychotherapy outcomes or outcomes of mindfulness training, and you get statistically significant results. That's great. Basically, you compare the treatment group to a control group, you get statistically significant results. But if you look closely and you burrow into the details of the study, which researchers often don't really like to reveal, <laughs> you routinely will find that a third to half or more of the intervention group got little to nothing out of it. Mm -hmm. And then if you come back to them in general a month later or a year later, there's no evidence of any kind of lasting gain. So even if there are some people, let's say the third or so, maybe even sometimes half or perhaps two thirds, who have a lot of incidental learning and maybe internally on their own, intuitively, they're using some of the methods that we explored in the study. They're the ones who are actually getting the most out of it. But what about everybody else? What about the third to half or more of the population who doesn't seem to get much out of all these things that we invest a lot in including mm -hmm. in the whole self-help industry, right? Yeah. Whether yeah. it's listening to a podcast or reading a book, 
So anyway, that's what we zeroed in on and investigated in this study. I just want to take a moment here to acknowledge that if this were easy, everyone would just be doing it already. Yeah. And so there are there are a lot of factors that go into changing an ingrained pattern. Uh, we've spent over 200 episodes on the podcast essentially talking about how to change various <laughs> various psychological characteristics that yeah. a person might have. And I can say from my own experience, being somebody who's been seeped in your material, of course, essentially since I was born, really since I started interacting with it more actively after you wrote Buddha's Brain, this stuff is, it's a guidebook. It doesn't get you up the mountain. And the guidebook is really useful, though. So part of what you did here is you wrote people a really, really good guidebook. And then the work of getting up the mountain can still be very hard work. So, okay, with that as context for what we're now going to talk about for the rest of the conversation, let's talk about this actual study. So to study something, you need to have a procedure, right? It's great to tell people, okay, really like focus on internalizing these positive experiences and do your best to, to really, I don't know, encode them in your brain, whatever that feels like to you. How did you actually have people do this? So to be really clear, there's a world of difference between having a beneficial experience, we'll call it a positive experience, and learning from it. So I developed, as you know, and people can read about it in the book, Hardwiring Happiness, the HEAL framework, H-E-A-L, as a framework for evidence-based learning factors. Think of these mm. as learning factors and especially think of them as mental learning factors that have to do with how we engage our experiences rather than more global, slower to change, harder to develop learning factors such as openness to experience, motivation, and a growth mindset. All right. So that framework, H-E-A-L, very briefly, stands for first stage of positive change, which is the activation phase, have a beneficial experience. Either because you're already having it, just notice it, it's under your nose, there it is, why not make use of it, or deliberately create it, like calling up a feeling of gratitude or compassion or determination, let's say, or commitment to your sobriety. Then the rest of the HEAL framework is about that second phase, which is installation or promoting, beginning the process plausibly of lasting change of neural structure or function that must underpin any lasting change for the better. So the E stands for enrich, and there are five ways to enrich our experiences, all of which have evidence for them that I cited in the study. We can extend the duration of the experience to a breath or longer, we can increase its intensity, kind of turn up the volume in our mind. We can bring all of our senses to bear, particularly sensations, like really feeling it in the body. We can focus on what is novel or fresh about it, which stimulates change in the brain. And we can recognize its personal relevance. Why would it matter to me, let's say, given my childhood, to take in experiences today of feeling included and cared about, which, as mm -hmm. you know, has been very important to me in my mm -hmm. own long-term process of healing. A stands for absorb, in which we plausibly sensitize the brain. In effect, we are fertilizing the soil to be receptive to now the big enriched seeds that are landing upon it. And we can do that by deliberately intending to internalize the experience. We can imagine or sense we are receiving it into ourselves. We are making room for it. We are giving over to it. And third, very importantly, we can focus on what is rewarding about it 
or meaningful, what is enjoyable or meaningful about it, which increases activity of dopamine and norepinephrine in your brain, which then promotes lasting neuroplastic change. So we have five factors there, in effect, none of which I invented, all of which have some evidence for them, but which nobody had put together in any kind of comprehensive, Mm. systematic way, and then trained people in using them. Mm. The last Mm -hmm. letter of the HEAL framework is L. It's the optional link step in which, as a kind of common practice in psychotherapy and everyday life even, we're aware of both positive and negative at the same time while making the positive bigger so that it can gradually soothe, ease, and even eventually replace the negative material, like using flowers to crowd out and then eventually even uproot the weeds. So that's the basic framework. And in the study, we taught that framework to people in the first of three three-hour classes, and then in the second three three-hour classes for a total of 18 hours as an intervention, we applied those general methods to developing key inner strengths related to our three major needs, notably for safety, satisfaction, and connection. Awesome. So it was an 18-hour course. It was, I think, titled the Taking in the Good Course. Yep. And I want to give some acknowledgement here to the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, who, as far as I'm aware, Dad, were pretty strong collaborators with you on the study. Is that right? That's exactly right. And we ran the what's called Institutional Review Board process, the RERB process, through the University of California. It was highly legitimate and careful and meticulous. We had ethics review of our subjects and the things that we had them do, which was essentially just take the program. And maybe we'll get into the weeds of the statistical analyses we did that were also very high level. And we'll get into that too. But yeah, it was a real study. I'd never, it had been a long time since I'd done one. The last time I did a study like this was my dissertation. But it had been, you know, 15 or 20 years. So I had to learn some things along the way. And I had very good research assistants. And I had wonderful now co-authors that I definitely Mm. want to give a shout out to here. So in order to study something, you've got to figure out how to measure it. It's great to just have a theory, but you needed to find a way to go into this group of people. I believe it was 46 people who Mm -hmm. were recruited in the greater San Francisco Bay Area. And they were randomly assigned to one of two groups. Then you needed to figure out what their baseline happiness was or their baseline measurements of these various things, how they changed after the study. How did all of that work? I don't want to get like too into the methodological weeds here, but I think it's kind of interesting. That's great. Okay, so this is a so-called randomized waitlist control trial. So we take Mm -hmm. 46 people. This is not a representative sample of humanity as a whole. These are mainly Mm -hmm. adults, mainly middle class, mainly white, strong majority women interested in this kind of personal growth stuff. That's who we got. So you start with what you have and you try to remember that any information is infinitely more informative than zero information because one is infinitely more than zero, categorically, (laughs) mathematically, do the math. Divide by zero equals infinity. See, I like that. So, you know, you, this you, is this is peak Rick right now. I just want to say one is infinitely more than zero is is way up there with does corn suffer and and some of my favorite Rickisms from the podcast. I like. All right, anyways, go ahead, Dad. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. So sometimes people can be just way too uptight and even pretentious sure. about science sure. and studies in in ways that are actually unscientific. A real science mm-hmm. just 
recognizes, you know, that one is infinitely more than zero. Or as a mentor of mine, Stan Kaplan, who I worked for, a mathematician doing risk analyses in my mid-20s, he said a real mathematician wakes up and wonders, what is a number, actually? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. So well, I actually want to take one second to, to speak to what you're speaking to here. We talk about research all the time on the podcast, and I often say things when I'm reviewing research, like, this is good research, or I say, this is kind of sketchy research, you know, whatever it might be. We want to be fair about this. This is a preliminary study. It's a mm -hmm. small sample size. That's right. It had a relatively homogeneous population. These are all things that I would say to the listeners if we were reviewing somebody else's research. So, of course, I want to say it if it's your research. Right. But at the same time, to your point, what you take from these preliminary works is an opportunity. It's the opportunity to take a look at 46 people, which as you said, is infinitely more than zero people, and go, all right, in practice, did this help people? Did this That's do right. anything? Because if it turns out that it did nothing for those 46 people, that doesn't mean 100% that this intervention doesn't work. There can be a lot of stuff in studies about study design yeah. and all of that good stuff. But hey, it's a pretty strong indicator that maybe you're going in the wrong direction, right? Yeah. And in much the same way, if you get great results back, oh, okay, that's a strong indicator that somebody should come along and do a 1,000-person study or yep. a 400-person study with a much more mixed population. So anyways, go ahead, Dad. Wonderful clarity. Yeah. So what you're doing basically is you're setting up a situation and investigating it. And then the question is, what can you infer or generalize yeah. from that particular investigation to the population as a whole? And that's the whole question, but you're exactly right. So what we did is then we assigned them to the course group and then the waitlist group who took the course later. The course itself, as I said, involved six classes, which spanned seven weeks. And we used a standard battery of 10 well-established key self-report measures that are used routinely in psychology, kind of gold standard measures, like the Beck Depression Inventory, mm. or the Mindful Awareness Scale, or a Self-Compassion Scale, or a Gratitude Scale, or a, it's called Subjective Well-Being Scale. These are very standard scales. We had people fill them out. We measured their state of mind at three points. Before beginning the course, immediately after taking the course, both the initial course group and then the waitlist group that took the course later, and then two months after the end of the course. And we both contrasted the initial course group to the waitlist group, and then in particular, we contrasted the pre-measures with immediately post and then a two-month follow-up. Mm -hmm. To be clear, mm -hmm. a two-month follow-up after a seven-week course with the inevitable amount of time it takes to get questionnaires out to people and get them back, we're looking at essentially results four months after things started, which in the general area of psychological research, it's a significant time interval, actually. Yeah. Many published studies do pre and post measures that are just pretty close together or immediately following. Six weeks is is pretty typical. So having two months, it's a little bit more than six weeks. Like this is just back of a napkin, like me inferring from my own experience reading way too many studies. But I think the number I'm most used to seeing is six week or six month follow up, and six month is very long term. Yeah, exactly right. So four months is respectable. Yeah, four months from the beginning of the course to the mm -hmm. result afterward. That's a respectable mm -hmm. interval. So that's how we did it. And maybe I could 
say what we found or yeah i would love that uh so to to give one more piece of information i think that in particular you had batteries of tests if i'm remembering correctly mm-hmm. that could be grouped into four categories four different mm, variables right. essentially that you were tracking and those were i'm pulling it up right those were positive emotions negative emotions total happiness and then the presence of cognitive resources things like mindfulness or self-compassion and you picked a bunch of different psychological batteries mm-hmm. that you could kind of loosely group into those four categories yeah exactly right great so we teach the course and then we see whoa did it make any difference what happened yeah yeah and i'm telling you <laughs> It's kind of nerve-wracking when you plug the numbers. I was going to say, were you stressed out for this? Uh, yeah, yeah, actually. I mean, it's a lot of work. Janelle Caponegro was a graduate student, a PhD student in the psychology department at Berkeley. And arguably, the psychology mm. department at Berkeley is the best in the country. So definitely. I was going to say, I mean, Berkeley is my alma mater, so I'm a little biased, but arguably best psych program in the country. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or at least tied for first place. Really top people there. So Janelle, yeah. top person. By the way, she got married. Now her last name is Painter, but I definitely want to give a full okay. shout out to her. She was wonderful. Yeah. Organizing the subjects, marshalling the cats, answering questions, doing questionnaires. She came to all the class meetings. Oh, cool. It was a major undertaking. Yeah. And then we had initial statistical analysis from Alexandra Springer, who was wonderfully helpful. And so when these analyses start coming out, you know, your heart's beating, are the numbers going to be any good? And then when we pulled together everything for the paper, we had a wonderful statistician. He's actually the head of the Biostatistics Resource Center, I believe, at Cornell University. That's Kevin Sullivan. So we did this in a really top way. My co-authors included Professor Shauna Shapiro, Emma Hutton-Tham, who was a grad student at the time, actually, at the University mm. of Queensland, and a wonderful, dynamic, brilliant young scholar, and my friend and colleague, Michael Haggerty, who's an emeritus professor from UC Davis. So we had some really, really high-quality people yeah, helping great us group. do this. Yeah, it was definitely legitimate. So <laughs> we did it. And should I tell you what we found? Yeah, I would love that. Well, the really short version, I got to indulge myself, this stuff works. <laughs> That's the takeaway. <laughs> Top line takeaway. Not bad. Yeah, this stuff works. For a small sample, Mm -hmm. you need big effects, essentially, to get statistical significance. And we had statistical significance for just about every measure, especially Mm -hmm. when we would cluster them together in the form of, for example, cognitive resources or positive or negative emotions. Mm -hmm. We found that training in and using these general methods for growing the good inside actually grew the good inside. Yeah. Whoa, who knew that actually learning how and being motivated to deliberately develop a more positive outlook on life, Mm -hmm. greater Mm self-compassion, more sense of gratitude, reducing factors of depressed mood, that deliberately training and how to do this actually promoted those kind of results. It kind of makes sense. At a certain level, it shouldn't be a surprise. What's really surprising is that in the broad field of mental health, we have not systematically trained people in how they can deliberately increase the impact of the experiences they're having in both formal interventions and informal efforts at healing and self-help. 
Yeah, so to kind of just read out the results a little bit more specifically, in the post-course measurement of it, there were statistically significant improvements in all four of the big categories that I named earlier with all of those batteries of tests associated with them. And then at two-month follow-up, there was statistical significance in three of the four of them. Positive emotions also changed positively, but it didn't quite crack that threshold that you were talking about, Dad, mm -hmm. for statistical significance, which, again, in a relatively small sample size, needs to be a pretty big change. And something that was pretty important was that there wasn't a big difference in the numbers post-course and at follow-up. Right. And that's actually really essential here because there are a lot of things that make us feel better or make us a little bit more active in our own lives for a little while, but they decay pretty quickly, pretty often, right? That's right. So the fact that, that we weren't seeing or that you weren't seeing some kind of a big decline between post-course and two-month was really encouraging. Yeah, exactly. What's the good that lasts? And I think there's a longing in many, many people mm -hmm. for the good that endures rather than what feels like psychological cotton candy. So you're exactly right. That whole notion of durable change is really important. Yeah. I could also add that there are some plausible bonus benefits that we did not examine directly. So I'm just mm -hmm. suggesting kind of a plausible notion here. One of them is that baked into the process of taking in the good are things like being on your own side mm. and treating yourself like you matter, mm -hmm. which itself has some bonus benefits. The other is that maybe, just maybe, this process of deliberately internalizing the good to grow more of the good inside yourself might actually sensitize your brain to beneficial experiences so you start learning faster from them mm. as the analog to, the inverse to, the well-known process in the brain whereby negative stressful, painful experiences gradually sensitize us mm, to mm -hmm. more negative experiences. Yeah. So we become even more negative as a result of them. Anticipatory pain and also yeah. things like that are a part of this. You start anticipating yeah. the shock before you receive it. Yeah. Yeah. And so in effect, my saying the brain is like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for positive ones, the hopeful possibility, mm. which warrants further investigation, yeah. is that we might actually be able to develop a brain that's more like Velcro for good experiences mm -hmm. and Teflon for bad ones. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I saw in the study that I thought was really interesting, this might be just like me being a methodological nerd over here and interested in study design and things like that as a, to be clear, total non-academic. If you're new listening to the podcast, I'm not a psychologist and I'm not an academic. I'm just somebody who reads too many studies. Um, <laughs> so, so my interest is entirely recreational. So we don't have to, Forrest. <laughs> You're sacrificing yourself. I know. I know. Doing, doing my best over here, man. And we all thank you for it. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> One of the things I thought was really interesting is that your first hypothesis for this study was basically, does this stuff work? Yeah. Does this work? We think it will work. Let's figure it out. The second hypothesis was, in the process of doing this, we think that people's mindfulness will also increase as a metric. We'll be able to, to see a demonstrably significant increase in the amount of trait mindfulness that people have before and after doing the study. And in the study, you saw a little bit of change there, but you didn't actually see very much change in trait mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So an interesting theory that y'all put together is that, well, this population of people was 
actually pretty high in trait mindfulness already. They were also pretty high in all of the other metrics, positive yeah. emotions, psychological resources, all of this kind of stuff, because of the nature of the population that you were selecting from. Small sample, San Francisco Bay Area, people kind of into mindfulnessy, meditationy, recansony kind of stuff. Okay, that's a pretty specific population. So because these people already started kind of high in these metrics, hey, maybe that put a ceiling basically mm -hmm. on how much better they could get. And that might have been capping how much improvement they saw in mindfulness. But in the same way, it might also have been capping how much improvement they saw in everything else. And you got really, really good results in everything else, which is actually really cool if you think about it. Kind of impressive, actually. Yeah, pretty impressive, right, Dad? And so it suggests that there might actually be more opportunity here for people who don't start as high in these different numbers. Yeah. Great summary. In effect, we're measuring change. Yeah. From beginning to, you know, immediately after and then two months after the end, which is to say roughly four months after they started. Mm -hmm. And you're exactly right. If we began with a more general population group, maybe less caught up already in the self-help, personal growth, Rick Fan world, <laughs> you know, frankly, <laughs> there would have been more possible room for improvement. Yeah. A greater range of change with a more general population, which is incredibly hopeful. Yeah. If we look to the future, you can see immediately what could be done. First, taking in the good course, or as we've renamed it, the positive neuroplasticity training, which is a standard 18-hour program that now dozens and dozens of people are teaching really around the world, and we're growing that teacher group along the way, to take that basic training and offer it to a much more diverse general population sample of people and see what the results might be first. Second, as best we can, get neuroimaging, which is very expensive. So you're going to need some money for that and some official involvement there. But basically, if you could do pre and post measures of the brain, that would be really interesting in terms of key areas of the brain, key activity in the brain. That would be a second line of investigation. A third would be to apply this approach to particular people with particular issues, such as people in the early stages of recovery from drug or alcohol addiction, or people grappling with traumatic material, or people who, let's say, have a medical issue that they're dealing with, and along the way, it would be wonderful to grow more inner strengths of different kinds inside themselves. I'm also talking with people in very large healthcare systems who offer trainings related to things like stress management and overall well-being or addiction control or weaning from smoking and how in these large programs can we just drop in little things even without taking the full positive neuroplasticity training little instruction for how to take in the good and use the heal process and then little reminders to do that along the way potentially to move from incidental learning as you said earlier to greater deliberate learning Mm. So I think there are all kinds of wonderful possibilities, some of which could be researched. And our great hope, and I know this is true for my co-authors, is that this initial study, which is like a beachhead, you know, we're just kind of establishing a beachhead. It is what it is. And yet the results are really promising. And conceptually, the basic underlying ideas just seem to make complete common sense. Yeah, and I do want to take a second here to give a quick plug for the course that you named before. It's called the Positive ah. Neuroplasticity Training. You do offer it online. I'll include a link to it. 
in the description of this podcast episode with probably a coupon code or something like that that people can use if they want to get a little bit of money off of it. And that being said, we also talk about these methods freely offered all the time on the podcast. Yeah. So the, the course is a way to get like a, a heavy dose of it all in one place if you want that. But we're talking about this stuff all the time. We talk about right. enriching and absorbing all the time on the podcast. And also generally, I just think it's a way to think about the world. Yeah. Like you were talking earlier about having an interaction with mom where you have a little moment of recognition of, okay, something could have gone differently. Mm -hmm. That itself, that little moment of recognition is like 90% of the game, mm -hmm. in my opinion. And there's just a huge transition in people, in their growth, in their relationships, in their mental health. When they start to have more moments like that, where it's a, it's a pattern break. Mm. It's, I don't have to do this the way that I have always done it. So that's huge right there on its own. And then after that moment of recognition happens, because I'm a big self-awareness guy, as we know, yeah. you go into, okay, what do you do about it? And yep. that's when you can apply those enrich and absorb steps, potentially. Yep. You could go, oh, we had this kind of interaction. Here's how it went. This is what I'm going to try on differently. I'm going to really feel what that feels like in the body. I'm going to have that moment of sticking with it and go like, oh, yeah, that was what happened. And here's the way I want it to be different in the future. Mm. That's kind of an abstract version of one of these things. It's not a granular experience of something like courage or calm or mindfulness. But it's a way in which you can apply the general idea yep. of having an experience, focusing on it for a second, offering some kind of a course correction, and then going on from there. And so I think that it's just a generally good framework to think about interacting with the world and interacting with our experiences broadly. Simple takeaway for me is summarized as deal with the bad for sure mm. and turn to the good and then take in the good. Yeah. Those three, really, really, really important. And if you were to ask me as actually, truly, weird to say it, the world's leading expert in the deliberate <laughs> internalization yeah, of beneficial totally. experiences to grow inner strengths. I mean, weird that it is, but it's true. And I wish there were more experts about this really, <laughs> really, 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 really important thing. Anyway, my three takeaways from knowing everything that I know, and it's what I personally do myself, are when you're understanding something, when you're intending something, when you're sensing or feeling something that is valuable to you, Slow down for a breath or longer and stay with that experience first. Second, feel it in your body. What's the sense of it in your body? Including maybe there's a new idea, but it probably has some kind of somatic register for you. Like there's a feeling of it in your body. That's the second thing you can do that will promote neuroplastic change in your brain. And third, focus on what's rewarding about it. What is enjoyable or meaningful or both? about the particular experience, which will also turbocharge the internalization process. While you're doing this, it just takes a handful of seconds. Nobody needs to know that you're doing it. So you could kind of do this in a meeting or while well, the in-laws are over for dinner, as I've done both of those kinds of things. <laughs> Definitely. Some, sometimes when you were present for us yeah. a long time ago. Anyway, no one can stop you from learning in the broadest sense, right? But no one can do it for you. So anyway, mm. I love these approaches mm -hmm. and I find it so helpful. As you've heard me say, you know, when we're being pushed around by so many big forces in life, it's just fantastic to know that inside the sanctuary of your own innermost being, 
you can continually help yourself heal and grow and develop and change for the better hmm. every day. Yeah, You can influence who you are becoming. Yeah. Lots of forces around us are shaping who we are becoming. You can be the driver of that process, actually, just by using these very simple evidence-based methods a handful of times every day. Yeah. So as we come to the very end here, Dad, I know that this process was a grind yeah. for you in a lot of different ways. It was a real process. Are there any other aspects of the experience or any things that happened along the way or things that came up, whatever, that you just think would be interesting to share with people so that they can kind of understand how this shadowy world of academic research like actually works practically? There are two things I'd like to share that are going to sound a little geeky maybe. So okay. the first of them, you alluded to earlier, this whole notion of statistical significance. Yeah, It's this idea that there's a finding that has less than a 5% chance of being due to random forces alone. Sure. Now, what that standard threshold means is that one in 20 studies that find a statistically significant result yeah. actually were the Are wrong. due to random effects <laughs> yeah. on the one hand. So <laughs> considering the vast number of studies that are being printed, 5% of them- That's a lot. Statistically, yeah are not significant. So that's an interesting thing to think about. But related to that, as mathematically inclined people who really understand probabilistic inference, people like Kevin Sullivan, who is one of our authors, as deeply understand, it's this 5% threshold is just made up. It's just an arbitrary threshold. It could have been set at 1%. It could have been set at 70%. For example, Forrest, if you had a serious illness and your doctor told you, well, there's this treatment, and there are two chances in three it could help you, and there's one chance in three it won't help you at all. What are you going to do? You would take I'm the, do treatment. the treatment. Yeah, yeah absolutely. two out of three yeah. is pretty good, yeah. you know. Yeah, not so but bad. But it would not be. But on the other hand, it would be unpublishable. You could not mm -hmm. publish it because yeah. it doesn't hit that ninety-five percent threshold. In other words, a p-value of less than five percent probability of a false positive is less than 5%. So this whole notion of statistical significance needs to be taken with a big grain of salt. And even in situations in which you get a statistically non-significant difference, say, between a treatment group and a control group, there may well still be subgroups mm. within the treatment group mm -hmm. who had certain factors present that enabled the treatment, the intervention, whatever it might be, to be significant for them. Very important to think about individual differences and subgroups, okay? Yeah, no, and, and to just take a second to speak to that, and again, I wanna be careful about this as a non-professional, yeah, non-academic, yeah. non-clinician, non all of that stuff, so I, I offer all of this diffidently, but there's a bit of a tendency in research to treat people as just essentially replaceable, fill-in-the-blank yep. voids inside of the study where you're just trying to hit a given number. And of course, studies that are well-composed are thinking about things like the gender distribution or the ethnic or racial identity distribution of the people that they're taking a look at, the socioeconomic distribution, all of that stuff. But by and large, they're just, they're just people. They're units, essentially. Well, we know that people are not the same. We know that there are massive differences in terms of somebody's internal constellation, sure. their life experience, all of this stuff. And then so in statistics, you take that into account by getting to really big samples. But we can't do that a lot of the time practically in research. And so what you're really asking is a very important question, Dad, which is why did the stuff work for the people it worked for? 
Exactly. Maybe it's just random variation. Maybe. Maybe it's just random variation. But maybe it's not. And if it's not, that's really interesting. Oh, very. And it can be life and death, too, because think about medical interventions in which, understandably, out of a duty of protection and, first of all, do no harm, medical establishment might look at a particular procedure or medication Mm -hmm. or even a more holistic kind of intervention that does not get statistical significance. And yet, when you burrow into the details for individuals who have certain factors, like they also have a genetic predisposition for X, and they're highly, highly motivated, Mm. they are going to implement the treatment protocol better than 90% of the other people in the study, let's say. And let's say also, they've got a lot of social support. They've got people cheering them on in their family that brings in that whole X factor of positive mood and, and social support. Those people with those characteristics ought to do the treatment because it would be effective for them. If we could isolate that subgroup and just study that subgroup compared to a control group, we might get statistical significance. So I think it's really mm-hmm. important to kind of mm-hmm. be aware of this and, and to, to push past the scientistic, not scientific, the scientistic mm-hmm mumbo-jumbo that people can sometimes (laughs) pontificate about who are actually deeply unscientific. Second point, we discovered it in our study. The purported gold standard is a control group and random assignment. Mm -hmm. So we did random assignment. We did it properly. We used mathematical tables and so forth. So be it. But as it turned out, the control group, the waitlist group, was markedly higher in a whole bunch of these measures. So if we're trying to compare the results of the course group, the people who did the course first, with where the waitlist group started, that improvement was flattened by the fact Mm. that, in effect, just as a group, randomly, the waitlist group started the race further ahead. They actually had Mm. a head start. So where the course group ended up then didn't seem that far compared to the waitlist group. Well, that was because the waitlist group randomly just were farther along as a cluster. And this is a very important development in research that's starting to emerge when people realize that, especially in relatively small samples, like under a thousand, certainly under a few hundred, which is the size of most studies, actually, in psychology, you get randomized effect in which when you do assign people randomly to a waitlist group, let's say, and then an intervention group, sometimes you create artifacts in which, on the one hand, maybe the waitlist group was further behind the starting point of the race. So then it looks like your intervention is really, really awesome. Mm. On the other hand, what happens if the waitlist group is a little further ahead? Clustering, in other words, is part of random variation in life. In nature, there are naturally clusters, whether it's clots of cars on the freeway during rush hour or clusters of trees in the woods. Clustering is natural. You can get clustering effects when you do random assignment to a waitlist group and a control group that can confound the results of your study so that more and more people now are starting to think about, as we did, just pooling. Take a look at your waitlist group and your control group, but also appreciate the effects of clustering. And often what the best thing to do is what we ended up doing is to pool 
your waitlist group and your intervention group, your course group, let's say, and really just take a look at before and after, especially before and after over a reasonable period of time. Yeah, I think that's actually really interesting. And it can also help you just see the world a little bit differently, where we have these artifacts inside of us, where we assume that a normal distribution of something is perfectly regimented, when in reality, a normal distribution doesn't look normal to our eye. It looks like it has those clusters and these weird imperfections in it. And so it can just help you see the world a little bit differently. But is there anything else now that we're here at the end that you would like to leave people with? Oh, if you'll indulge me, I would just love to finish yeah, sure. by, by reading the final two paragraphs of the, of the paper. Awesome. And so you're going to get a kind of polished academic language here, but here we go, if that's okay. Overall, we have found relatively little research on the deliberate use of internal mental factors to heighten social and emotional learning in both structured interventions and everyday life. To take psychotherapy as an example, there has been extensive work on the effects of therapist and client characteristics and of methods and settings, but little focus on what clients are actually doing inside their minds to increase lasting healing and growth from the experiences they are having. Mental health interventions, including those in positive psychology, generally value beneficial developments in the internal world of the individual with norms of respect for the autonomy of that person. Consequently, exploring how people can be active agents in their own process of lasting internal change, informed by the growing understanding of positive neuroplasticity, could be full of opportunity. That's awesome. Thanks so much for doing this with me today, Dad, and for uh, putting all the effort into doing the study as well, and congratulations on it. Thank you, Forrest. And I got to say at a human level, just realizing it here, it's cool for me to be able to share this accomplishment with you. It's yeah. kind of like building a little house. Mm, mm -hmm. And it's tickled me that you've been interested in the little house we built and you've appreciated it. And it's kind of fun for me to share that with you and, and walk yeah. around inside it and bang on it and go, yeah, <laughs> next house I build will be a little better this way or that way. <laughs> I hope more people build houses like this and different houses and so forth. That's been really sweet to kind of share this awesome. with you. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Today, I talked with Rick about a study that was recently published that he was actually the first author on titled Learning to Learn from Positive Experiences. And if you're interested in reading the study, I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. We started by giving some background on what he was studying, which was essentially how we can make learning stick. We know that people draw on a variety of inner strengths or psychological resources, both to face big challenges and also just as the wallpaper of their day-to-day -day experience that can make Everyday interactions go just a little bit better. And while some of those psychological resources are probably innate, Rick mentioned during the episode that about a third of what makes up who we are is probably heritable or genetic on some level, most of them are acquired in one way or the other. We learn them over the course of our lives. And we learn them based on our experiences. For example, it's a lot easier to be confident when we've had experiences of success at some point in our lives. And we know that there's a lot that influences learning. And we know that there's a lot that influences learning, how we learn from our experiences and integrate them 
as lasting change in some meaningful way. And everything from physiological factors, like how much sleep a person gets, can influence learning. And so, too, can things like the environment that somebody is learning in. And then there are mental factors, like whether or not somebody has a growth mindset or their unique temperament or personality. And these are all really important. But it's often hard for us to control those big picture things, right? To give an example, a kid sitting in a school classroom often doesn't have a lot of control over their environment, and we don't have a lot of in-the-moment control over our temperament or personality. Maybe we can impact these things over time, but they're pretty big picture. So Rick really wanted to focus on what he calls mental engagement factors. And this includes what a person does deliberately in the moment to support the internalization phase of learning. He talks about learning as having two phases. The first one is activation, which is when we have an experience of something that we can learn from. And the second is installation, which is when we go out of our way to learn from it. And there are two parts of internalization that Rick likes to emphasize. The first is what he calls enrich, where we can go through a variety of processes that he outlines in the paper to make the experience bigger in our minds. We can stick with it for a longer period of time. We can think about why it's salient for us. We can really focus on the somatic aspects of the experience, in addition to a variety of other things that people can do. And then if enriching is like increasing the quantity and the concentration of liquid that's being poured on top of a sponge, absorbing is the receptivity of the sponge itself to that liquid. And mentally, this can involve intending and sensing that an experience is being taken into you, which can also include highlighting what's rewarding about the experience. I've heard Rick give a number of visualizations to people that can help them highlight that absorbing experience, things like seeing a stone drop into a pond, or with kids, he'll give them the cue to take a positive experience and put it into a little treasure chest and then to put the treasure chest inside of their heart, which is very sweet. We talked for a lot of the episode about the methodology of the study, what goes into making a study like this, and how it all actually worked. To very quickly summarize, participants were measured across a variety of psychological batteries before going through the intervention, immediately after the intervention, and then at two-month follow-up. I believe that it was 46 people. They were taken from the San Francisco Bay Area. It was a pretty homogeneous population, which was one of the potential issues with the study that I'm sure Rick would like to change if he had another crack at this and they were able to do it with more funding and a larger population and all of that kind of stuff. But as he said during the conversation, some information is infinitely better than no information. The participants then took a course. It was an 18-hour course that was broken up into six three-hour chunks. At the time, it was titled the Taking in the Good course. It's since been renamed the Positive Neuroplasticity Training. So then they had all of their measurements. They measured people before, measured people after, and went, hey, did this do anything? And they found out that, yes, in fact, it did. It had a really lovely positive effect for people. We talked for a bit at the end about a lot of methodology, things like your ceiling effect and clustering and how big a change needs to be in order for it to be statistically significant. And if you're interested in that kind of research-based stuff, I think that a lot of the comments that Rick made at the end were really quite interesting. So that's it for today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. 
If you would take a moment to subscribe to it on whatever you're listening to it now on, you could also leave a rating and a positive review. That really helps us out. And hey, best way for us to reach new people is for you to tell a friend about the show. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll get a whole bunch of bonuses in return. And also, you can actually take the course if you would like to that was studied in this study. Again, it's the Positive Neuroplasticity Training, and I've included a link to it in the description of today's episode with a coupon code of some kind or another. Finally, I'd just like to end this episode by saying that the show's been really growing a lot recently, and it's left me feeling incredibly grateful to everybody who listens, because I know that so much of this is that we have a wonderful and phenomenally engaged group of people who listen to the show, who tell other people about it, who send us great emails. You can always email me at contact at beingwellpodcast.com or reach out over social media. I read pretty much all of those messages. And I just feel just enormously privileged to be able to do this. So thank you for making this all possible. So until next time, once again, thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you soon.